That's pretty cool. And so yeah, the uh, even the sheet, the sheet. Um, I'll be talking a lot about what that is, but um, that's some of that's going towards just making making this go uh, happen. So cool. cool. Well, well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here, here, hanging out with you guys, guys and uh, talking about tending to the life of the soil. It's a uh, it's a pretty cool topic, and uh, for us as farmers in Hawaii, it's been a big deal. Uh, we have a family farm and um, the profitability and just overall success has um, been pretty well changed just by instead of looking at the tree and what the tree is doing, looking at the soil and how that is affecting what the tree is doing. It's um, been massive for us. So I'll jump into that. And uh, it's cool to see that a bunch of you know what natural farming is. And um, I don't know where everybody is. So because of that, this year, maybe next year, come back and we get into all nitty gritty and the people that don't know what natural farming is are just going to be left behind and have to ask you. But this year, I'm going to play a line somewhere between an introduction to the concepts and um, sharing knowledge to kind of put some tools in your pocket. So I um, grew up on a farm. I was born, uh, my dad was farming when I was born, and um, we farmed pigs and cattle, ranch cattle, and, um, you know, eggplant and pineapple and all of it. It was a lot of fun. I'm, I'm grateful for, for that. Um, and somewhere along the line, it fell to me to um, make some decisions and uh, work towards profitability as a farm. And we had, we had a hard time sometimes in farming. Um, and a pretty significant crop failure happened that caused us to look at what the soil life was doing, what our trees were showing us that our extension agent couldn't explain to us. And uh, through a series of really cool opportunities, I had uh, Elaine Ingham come to our town and um, this guy Chohan Yu, um, the kind of iteration of natural farming that's widely shared right now, um, came from him, though this is more of a broad Asian practice, um, traditional uh, farming method. But um, those things happened for us on our farm back in 2008, 2009 and uh, then really got going for us in 2011. And uh, yeah, it's, we're currently um, more profitable than we've been in 30 years as a family farm. And um, it's by and large attributed to a slightly different way of farming. Uh, though the whole business model still looks the same where uh, our bottom line has changed. So that's kind of why I'm here. I farm regeneratively on 700 acres. It's scalable. I live on an island where all inputs and things to bring in are as expensive as it gets. And so we basically produce all our inputs on farm um, at 700 acres. So this is totally doable. We don't, we don't have a huge crew. Right now, my natural farming crew is two people. Um, one and a half. One person's a part-time manager, part-time natural farmer. So. This, for 700 acres, to make everything and apply everything is basically a two-person crew. Pretty fun. Yeah, so the plant above ground 
represents the life or, or the health of your system below ground. Um, this is real. This is not a, a theory, and, and I know you guys have heard a lot about that um, in the last few days. Um, what I'm going to do is, is touch on some of the scientific reasons why, but I think you guys are pretty well, you know, like, okay, yes, I have to tend to the life of the soil, that's why you're here. So I'm also going to talk a little bit of the, the practical avenue to get this done. And um, if you don't know, um, in natural farming, I've taken some time to make some videos. They're on YouTube. Um, you can bump your neighbor or get that, but you can just search my name, Chris Trump, um, and that'll give you a lot of the tools of to how to make some of this stuff. And, uh, and there'll continue to be a bunch more of that. All right. So by tending to the soil microbial life, farmers can increase nutrient uptake, uh, suppress disease, and directly affect profitability. Um, I think Elaine talked to you a little bit on Thursday or Friday um, about how much nutrient is in soil. Um, there's tons of nutrients in soil. We currently farm um, nitrogen-wise um, for about not even a hundredth of the recommended nitrogen um, application rate for our crop. So the entire world disagrees with our nu nutrient application amounts per year, our, our entire industry. And we farm at about 25% higher yields than anyone in our state in our industry. It doesn't work, right? And, and so we get a lot of people like, you guys, you know, when we first started, ah, oh, you're crazy. You can't do it like that. That's, nobody does it like that. You know, you, you can't stop applying fertilizer and increase yields, you know. And, um, and we do, we apply a tiny bit of fish fertilizer, liquid fish fertilizer, but now, seven, eight years into us doing this, um, farm-wide, they're coming over and they're so, what are you doing? See, we're making more money than them now. And that's a big deal. You know, so now they, we didn't have to say, hey, you should come check out what we're doing. Our trees look better. We're not dealing with the same diseases they're dealing with. And our yields are up by 25% of what they're getting with a pretty significant fertilizer budget. And so this, um, this thing we're going to talk about, I just, I'm here, a little part of why I'm here is to say, yeah, I do this, it works. If it's a little bit of work to wrap your head around it and get into it and make it your own, it's worth it. So yeah, don't feel feel hopeful that uh, even even though there's a little been a little bit of uh, well, you can't do that. You're gonna ruin everything. That like just so soil microbial health. So this is um, in natural farming. We talk about indigenous microorganisms. IMO. I'll use IMO from now on. Ooh. Can we? Can we turn the heat down or should I stand on this side? I should stand on this side, away from those. I'm gonna drink. So we talk about IMO. Um, the concepts in natural farming are that we use indigenous microbes, um, generally because they like our 
barometric pressure or rainfall or temperature. So they're going to thrive, especially if you're growing outdoors. It is a dry product, a dormant product that then I can spread on my land. And I'm basically spread, spreading solid fungal seeds. That's what it looks like under the microscope when I've done. It's just chocked full of this. That gets on my nice wet surface layer of, um, you know, leaves, etc. Um, uh, if you were to think about your intestines, the inside of your intestines as the space around a plant's root, um, that would be a, a decent analogy as far as function. We have a human microbiota, a human biome or gut microbial life kind of colonies that happen that help us get nutrients from the things we put in, from our inputs. Plants are the same way and uh, it directly affects their profitability, how healthy this zone is. How many of you guys know that a person can get really, really sick if, the, if their human biome breaks down, right? We have all kinds of crazy diseases because people have lost diversity in their gut biome. Um, this is the same thing that we can have happening in plants and we're thinking, I just need to put in better nutrients. They're just deficient in this, this, or this. We start chasing these deficiencies showing up in the leaves when really there's plenty of that in your soil or enough. It just needs to be um, in a healthy living environment able to be taken up. So, so this picture is really to demonstrate the similarity um, between the root zone of a plant and a human. And a lot of what we'll, I'll do today in natural farming is take human analogy um, for plants because it actually helps us. Because we intuitively understand how, you know, babies and human beings work. Um, and we can actually use that because nature's really similar in, in mammals and plants. Um, if we can look at them next to each other. All right, so I'm going to get super weird on you for making this analogy. Um, there's a process known as FMT, or fecal matter or microbiota transplant. Um, so somebody can be totally failing. They can be dying, literally, from a breakdown of microbiota in their gut. And... Um, Somewhere along the way, I actually, actually met scientists, scientists who read about this in China, China. Um, <coughs> last, last year. I was speaking about this in, in China with the International Macadamia Society uh, research panel. And um, he's like, I invented that technique, and I've never heard anybody speak on it on stage. And I was really excited. Um, very, very FMT nerdy guy. But really <laughs> But what's cool about this technique is it's basically you take the diversity of microbiota or human biome kind of gut microbial diversity from a healthy person and either in a pill or in a suppository you give it to the unhealthy person and they become healthy. The cool thing about that is we don't really know, oops, we don't understand why it works. So we're doing this to human beings with limited knowledge of why it works. The, the reality is, is the interconnectivity of the complex diversity of human microbial life, or microbial life in the human gut, 
is beyond our ability to currently understand. And we've actually embraced that in this technique and saying, but it works. The person's dying, now they're healthy. We just need to take the healthy person's stuff and put it in the unhealthy person and everything works out. I, I use this analogy to say, to, to help us wrap our heads around, you don't actually have to understand every single microbe and all its interconnections. A little bust out of the, on, or uh, burning of the um, scientific community as a whole, we don't understand almost anything at all on the interconnectivity of microbial life. We have had a system for many years of isolating a microbe and trying to study it in isolation. And that's effective, we can learn some things. But there is not enough computing power in the entirety of the world to analyze or properly look at the interconnectivity of microbial life in a healthy soil food web in a cubic inch of soil. We don't know how they interact with each other. We, we don't understand that. We are totally ignorant as a worldwide population of scientists. And that's okay. We can, however, benefit from the balance that nature establishes on its own. Just like FMT. We don't understand why those, that specific balance works or even understand what the balance is. But we can take it from one person Still no and give it to another and no get good. the results. So that's Are we good? kind of what okay. we're doing with indigenous microorganisms. Did you get the Wi-Fi? We're saying, I am growing a plant here, and my soil life is not diverse or thriving. So I'm going to go to a forest that hasn't been messed with for a thousand years or a thriving wild ecosystem. So just look for the I'm going to take some of the soil FMT, just go to the line. a farmer's own inoculum, and I'm going to restore or establish yeah, so great SIV diversity and thriving microbial in my crop I don't that have to understand every microbe in that system to benefit from it and how thriving plants and how Does that make sense? Sorry, I apologize for my strange analogy, but uh, it's, it's helped um, everybody get on board. All right, so this is an example of um, an earthward analysis of um, some IMO number three from um, actually this time last year um, on our farm. And um, what I'm going for here is, again, a dry product. I end up, so this is a, a dormant or a low moisture product um, where I've taken indigenous microbes from a local area, grown it out on the media, and gotten an extremely high fungal to bacterial ratio um, so that I can just spread all those fungal spores out on my cropland or spray them out in tea form and uh, benefit from that inoculum. I get disease resistance, I get bug suppressing um, uh, qualities from this diversity of nature. Because how many of you guys know that many, many bugs have a fungal predator? You know, that a lot of, a lot of things, and you know, these, these expensive treatments that we can get from our, our local uh, Bavaria Bassiana, salesmen actually are already in our soil and we can get them established in such a way that we're actually getting natural disease resistance just by having the diversity present. Now, do we 
totally have perfect data for all of this? You know, no. We know it works. We know that it exists in nature, but we can be okay with not isolating every strain of microbial life that we're applying. We can benefit because it's already working in uh, a natural environment, growing trees that are healthy, we're identifying them. So, um, so I'm going for my farm because of trees, and really for your, far for your farms as well, um, cannabis um, loves a higher fungal bacterial ratio. It's not like um, lettuce or something like that, or we're closer to a shrub or a tree, and so you're anywhere from 20 to 30 to 1 of fungal to bacterial ratio that your plant likes. And I know you've heard this a lot this weekend, but I just want to encourage you, understanding where you are in fungal to bacterial ratio in your growing media or your, your root zone is super important. You think all nutrients, and I want to get the right nutrients, I want to get the right nutrients. If your plant is in a one-to-one fungal -one bacterial soil, you're going to have a deficiency of nutrients even if you spent all the money on all the best things, you're going to have a deficiency in uptake. And, and that's, it can be almost free resolving that. So I just really want to say it again, I know you've already heard, but um, understanding fungal to bacterial ratio, if you leave with something you didn't have before, pursuing, wrapping your head, going down the rabbit trail of that, strongly encourage that. So um, you have, um, disease suppressing fungi and um, all kinds of cool things. So I'm looking for my total fungi because this is dormant. Um, this is um, not the same as active fungi. Remember this is a dry material. So what those are is those really cool circular fungal spores like we had in um, this, this thing here. So these guys will sit in a dry environment just waiting for you to reintroduce water and they'll all wake up and create hypha and go to town, breaking down your nutrients and making the plant available. And then, yeah, total fungi, total bacteria. Here's another one. Um, you have disease um, suppressing fungi, um, which is awesome. So, so many times I see these deficiencies um, that people are posting. And it's like, yes, you can do a foliar micronutrient and probably get a correction there. But if you understood tending to the microbial life of your soil and getting balance or, or the right ratio of fungi to bacteria, you probably wouldn't have that issue in the first place. And so do you want to chase the deficiency or do you want to, and we switched. So um, on our farm, we've taken uh, soil and um, tissue culture or tissue tests for, you know, 20 years. And um, with our soil analysis, we'd have these pH problems and they'd be like, you know, two tons of lime per acre, you know, for the growing season. And you, get, you go by the lime and apply it. And then we'd have the same prescription for 10 years running. And like, I, I don't think we're correcting the problem. You know, our, our, it's, we're going to end. Now, since we've switched to tending the microbial life of the soil, um, we actually have never had a pH problem. Our pH is perfect for a crop. It's, it's a funny thing. We never apply lime anymore. So, um, yeah, just the encouragement to um, 
think of this as a uh, living system and tending to that properly and, and not really having to chase as much in the microbial or micronutrient. So we, as we made this change on Sun and Bart's Orchard, we did about half and half to start. We had 360 or 400 conventional, 360 uh, organic, and we would submit our uh, soil and tissue uh, to the analyst. And initially, before we started, we had these um, soil deficiencies that showed up in the tissue. And he's like, oh, you got to do this much, da da da. And then as we changed and started tending the microbial life of the soil, we'd submit the tissue and the soil, and you'd be like, wow, you have all these deficiencies in your soil, but I'm not seeing any of them in the tissue. I'm not seeing any of them in your leaves. Your leaves are perfect. And so we had to explain to them, we, we are, this is what we're doing, we're thinking we're getting better nutrient uptake, etc. And so the next year when we submitted our uh, soil and tissue, he put an asterisk, a little star. He said, unless there's high quality of microbial life present. So we had a recommendation or for on our soil analysis, like, oh, this is what you're going to need unless there's high microbial life present. Because he couldn't understand. He didn't know what he was looking at. He didn't understand what was happening on the farm. He couldn't make a recommendation with the scientific knowledge because he's not seen any of the deficiencies in our leaves. Does that make sense? So all of a sudden, that whole testing system was broken for us. And no, it's no longer a, our soil nutrient analysis is no longer a good representation of our uptake or what's available to our trees. Because our trees have microbial relationships in their root zones. And so they're getting all these nutrients that aren't even showing up on the soil analysis. Does that make sense? You guys are with me. Cool. So, um, I stand here to tell you that it's commercially viable and scalable um, to, to tend to the microbial life in the soil using this free natural farming. Um, and let me say this, because you guys know me as somebody that shares free natural farming. I don't believe it's the only way to tend to the microbial life of the soil. I love Elaine Ingham's information. She taught me um, fungal bacteria ratio. I didn't understand that when I started, and I was working hard to try and tend to the microbial life in the trees. And I had an experiment gone wrong where I applied something somebody else made, and like five acres of trees yellowed overnight. And I was like, what did I do? And she came to town that next week, and I took a week long class with her. She taught me the microscope. I bought a microscope. I go and look at the stuff I applied. It's all bacterial. I grow trees. My trees are like a thousand to one or 30 to a thousand to one fungal. And I applied something that imbalanced them bacterially, and they were telling me they're not happy. And so that was huge for me. And so, so you know, that I'm just saying you can take those principles, and this is an elegant method to apply it. Um, there's methods all over the world that are super cool and have been passed down by farmers for generations. And uh, I believe farmers were some of the best scientists before we had universities because science is the observation, is the study of nature through observation and experimentation. And who's better at observing the crops than farmers, right? And who's better at doing experiments than farmers because they never want to do an experiment that failed next year, right? So the things they passed down weren't like, oh, you know, like the community didn't go, oh yeah, that farmer, his crops always die and he's trying to sell us this method he's using. 
you know, they, they wouldn't use that again. They wouldn't teach a son that thing, you know. So if we have some this this thousand year old practice of tending to the microbial life of the soil, and now we're seeing it lines up beautifully with what we understand of science, we can say, oh yeah, they were doing using science even before they had a microscope because they were observing and experimenting and taking what worked. Because a farmer is basing their livelihood on what works or doesn't. So they're gonna they're gonna keep doing things that work and they're gonna quickly cut out the things that don't work, right? So natural farming is just an elegant method. It's something I found it helped me apply these principles quickly and efficiently on a large scale. Um, one of my favorite things about all of this and about this whole conference is we are gaining tools to understand and partner with natural law. Your understanding based on scientific realities, all of a sudden you can observe something and make judgments, analysis with, with pretty good information. And so your hypothesis become educated guesses and you can make decisions or, or movements as a farmer that are actually going to help you because you have understanding. You're not just, I have no idea what's going on here. See, when, you, when you're doing things from a chemical standpoint, you actually have no concept of the flow of nutrients. You're just, you're just giving nutrients. And, and so as we step into, oh, there's relationships here and this is how nutrients are taken up, all of a sudden you have, oh, my water is causing the aerobic fungi, my overwatering is causing the aerobic fungi to have no oxygen and so I'm getting imbalanced bacterially and I have these deficiencies and you're seeing things, that's my favorite part, is that you as a farmer through this knowledge can gain tools to make analysis and educated guesses to um, increase your profitability in production. So observation becomes a very important tool for a farmer. Um, this is a, a study done by University of Hawaii in Manoa um, by Kun Hui Wang. Um, a friend of mine, and uh, I want to cruise through this real quickly. I don't want to spend a lot of time here um, just because I think you've had a lot of cool science and I want to talk a little bit more of application. But um, this one's neat. They did a, um, this is telling about it, but this is a little easier to differentiate. Um, they did um, eight kind of side-by-side -side rows with corn. They did a standard grower practice, which is like a conventional grower practice. So fertilizers plus a work weekly horticultural micronutrient mix. So 100% fertilizer. Um, they did a control, no treatment at all. They did IMO number four, which is just a stages of growing it out. Um, and then a, a foliar nutrient spray, which is very light, um, very little, um, almost homeopathic. And then you have EM um, with 50% of the standard grower fertilizer. So bringing in um, uh, organic fertilizers and 50% and, uh, of a standard rate. Two applications, they did it kind of continually and then Sumagrow, Mycos. So these are all plant-based um, inoculums you can get plus fertilizer. And uh, they did these all side by side. Corn height 
IMO, Mycos, and Standard were pretty similar. IMOs here with being a little taller five weeks after planting. Um, total fruit weight, IMO beat everything. Um, by Not by a whole lot though, Standard Grow in practice and 50% fertilizer EM was close. This um, study was funded by EM, uh, an EM company, and they were, they were allowed to take it down because they didn't like the results, so it's not on the internet, but I have it, and so does, um, so does University of Hawaii Manoa. Um, total plant biomass, standard grower practice was slightly higher, um, IMO and these were all pretty comparable. Um, fruit weight, um, few of these produce comparable yields as the standard grower practice. Um, similar, um, slightly higher fruit counts as the uh, standard grower practice in IMO and, and uh, some of the other things. However, it was noteworthy that the microorganism treatment did comparably well with only one to two applications up front versus the standard practice, which included 100% conventional fertilizers and weekly micronutrient foliar, foliar applications. So um, here's the part that I have a little bit of issue with, is that this is a really cool study and we see some needed results, but we don't see the costs of those comparably. Now all those, that I know because I know what it costs to buy um, some of these things, but these this is way more expensive than this, and these all you're you're buying um, off the shelf retail products. And I'm sorry for retail product sellers. I'm not I'm not against that in any way. I'm just saying when we, when you guys start having to sharpen your pencil and look at your bottom line, knowing with the research what the costs are and how to, to balance that is gonna be valuable information. So I guess I just, a little bit of a push for research that does bring into consideration the cost for a farmer. And so what I take away from this is, wow, for you know one cent on the dollar, I can get comparable yields. I don't even care if they're the same yields or slightly lower. If I'm making about 100% more per pound, you know, or, or you know, whatever, 50% more per pound, that's a big deal. And uh, so, for your information. Um, so this is um, our nut farm, and we use 100% of these natural farming practices, and our costs are compar comparable to conventional, um, because we have, we have to mow now, or conventional just sprays Roundup, torches their whole um, floor. And then our yields are a little higher than conventional. Um, this is one of the um, fathers, if you will, of natural farming. Um, and he said the ultimate goal of farming is not the growing of crops, but the cultivation and perfection of human beings. And I think as you guys uh, look at all of this, what you're doing, what you're taking in, what you're affecting in your environment and how you feel about it also matters that has a value. So I, I'm just, uh, you're on the right track in uh, hanging out here. Definitely further research needed. I love research. I am I'm pretty, pretty nerdy when it comes to uh, doing trials and, 
analysis. So if you have somebody that wants help with uh, natural farming research, let me call. I'd love to be involved. And so feel free also to contact me. I have to take off today. Um, this particular trip was kind of tight for me. Um, so I'm not going to hang out uh, all night to answer questions. I'm sorry about that. But feel free. Um, hit me up and ask me anything. Um, like Suzanne, you know, how many guys have had responses from me on the internet, via Instagram and stuff? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll answer eventually. So, uh, all right, I'm going to show you now. We're going to jump into a little bit of the application. All right, so. In natural farming, in natural farming, we are um, there's some theory involved in applying um, nutrients that I found to be really effective. And so, um, the theory is the right amount at the right time. So the, the the power becomes in the hands of the farmer in observation. So it's not front load all your nutrients in the beginning um, as much as it is that a plant, like a human being, goes through stages of life where it needs different um, nutritional, it has different nutritional needs. This is kind of out of order because I need to explain this, but um, the toolkit Simplified, and that's kind of what the sheet is that Josh was holding up. Um, it's basically what I wish I would have had when I started natural farming, something to kind of keep me on track, help me remember all these kind of um, recipes. Um, and even with the dry erase marker, being able to check off when I'm making things. But um, we have a, a baby food or a, a maintenance type spray. Um, we have a type two. Um, I'll, I'll show what all these are in a minute. Um, food for rapid growth, so that's your, your veg. There's changeover food for that, that period of time where a plant kind of shifts its nutrient needs. Um, and then stuff to help it deal with all that stored nitrogen and produce the structure necessary for good production. And then liquid IMO is something that um, kind of my contribution um, in a way to natural a slightly different recipe that came out of Korea. Alright, so you and I are one is part of this philosophy in natural farming. Um, to use human life cycle as analogous to plant life cycles, to help us wrap our heads around the concept that a plant doesn't need its midlife food when it's a seedling. Um, so um, we have an infancy in, in humans, and we understand that a uh, baby, when it's born, needs colostrum and then milk, you know, these very small amounts of food. We instinctually know that we never want to give our three-day-old infant steak. You know, we, we just, we know that. We, we're never going to do that. It's intuitive, right? However, we'll take a new seedling and put it in extremely dense, nutrient-rich soil. 
you know, or, or you know, we'll, we'll transplant into something where we're trying to get all the soil there or ahead of time, all the nutrients. And um, I would venture to say you're actually limiting your plant's total poten potential um, by not letting it struggle with a small amount of nutrients at a young age, um, where it's going to be that much better at taking up nutrients when it really needs it. So, concept as it relates to children. We have a rapid growth stage, so we have this, this infant stage like him. If I give him a, a four course meal, you know, at one or however old he is, um, this, this is my son Logan, and uh, he, he would, it wouldn't be quite right for him if I tried to make him eat my portions, right? I'm different. Um, we know that, but do we do that, do we apply that to plants? I would say wrongly we don't, we, we try and and so this is the concept, that we can take the concept of different nutritional needs in its life cycle as we already intuitively understand it in humans and think about it as it relates to plants. So, um, in a human being we go through an infancy, we go through a young child where we're starting to get more nutrients and then we get into the next stage where this guy, you know, basically as much as I can push into him food-wise, he's going to stay beanpole skinny and burn it all off because he's just growing like crazy, making structure, right? He can't eat too much. You can't put a 10-year-old on a diet because they are every bit of food you give them. See, your plants go through this. And vegetative growth, like if, if they have all their food, they just do really well. And if they have proper microbial connections, they're going to take everything they need and they're going to thrive. And you can't really overfeed them. But this guy, I could, I could overfeed. I could do the wrong, you know, he's, he's going to get, you know, but even at his age, he's actually almost past the place of overfeeding them. It's the infant, you know, that you don't want to feed steak to. So I know that's kind of like, well, why is he talking about human beings and plants? I just not really understand. Um, it's, it's kind of a strange analogy, but I have found um, by doing it over the last 10 years that I actually get better yields if I let my seedlings struggle with a low nutrient than if I give them a ton of nutrients to start. I'm talking better yields like a month later. Why? Well, it's because I'm training a plant to eat for its life. I'm training a plant, and so with low nutrient needs in the beginning of its life, it actually like, I need to work on these roots, and I need to make relationships, and it starts pushing for nutritional uptake in the early stage, rather than saying, oh, everything I need is here, and we get fat and lazy, <laughs> right? And, and so all of a sudden, when it is time to like grow, it, it focused on roots and, and et cetera, and um, nutrient uptake in its early age. And now, when it's time to jam and eat and grow like crazy, it's actually doing that better than if I had fed it like crazy from a young age. These are, this is kind of the concept. So for example, there's seed soak, which is a very light nutritional um, thing. And this is pictures I'm using of Wendy's by permission. She had, um, she used seed soap rather than just water, and she had 100% germination 
in about 10 hours so much, so quickly, she wasn't ready for it. And, um, and then those, um, even just with, with uh, SES, she has um, somehow the, the seeds are showing a little bit better um, uh, health at several weeks old than stuff with folic acid and, you know, random, a bunch of extra food. So this lesser food, then adding a bunch of things, she's actually seen better results. Um, this, this is applied to everything, though. I'm seeing this everywhere. So for, this is just a four example. So what do you mean? Um, so there's also this concept that every plant goes through different stages, stages of skinniness, stages of fatness. You go back to, you know, these guys, He's round, and how many of you guys know the kids, they get a little round and then they shoot up? And then they get round and then they shoot up, right? You've seen that little little pudgy and then you see them next year and they're like two feet taller and beanpole. You know, it's it's what happens with kids. Like this guy looked like this, you know, but now he's like all all bones and knees and stuff. You know, this so these are different they have different nutritional needs. This guy needs you know, his calcium to help produce structure to grow and process all this stored energy and fat, this guy probably just needs as much fat as I can put in, right? He needs high energy, etc. So plants are the same way. These plants all are showing us and telling us different things. Your plants do the same. So we'll do a little game. So let's say we have vegetative, which is high nitrogen. Uh, food. This is foods and natural farming. It's really light, um, targeted foods for the right amount of nutrients at the right time. So we have vegetative growth, which is type 2. We have changeover, which is to help a plant go from vegetative growth to fruit production. And then we have um, type 3, which has more calcium, helps it um, work with some of its stored nitrogen and uh, produce structure and, and growth so that it can produce more crop. Um, so, what is this plant telling us it needs? This is kind of a trick question, but I just explained to you. But what is it kind of saying? What, where, what kid would you say that looks like? Short and fat, right? It's kind of round. Kind of looks like he has a lot of nitrogen, but maybe, maybe it could use something else. So. This one would need type three. We would apply some calcium here. We would give it the the amount, the nutrient it needs. It doesn't need more nitrogen right now, right? The plant's not saying, give me more nitrogen. It's saying, hey, I'm, I might need something to balance some of my nitrogen. Maybe somebody loaded me up with a ton of fertilizer here, right? You, you with me, kind of see that? All right, so what is this plant telling us? It's kind of hard to see, it's, it's from, far away, but yeah, it's it's just beginning to have little um, nodes show up um, here. So it, it's getting ready, getting ready to fruit. And so it's, it's going to shift its nutrient needs um, right now. So we do changeover. And then what is this plant telling us? It needs, probably needs a little food, right? It's like, hey, I'm hungry. So we would give it type two with some with some nitrogen mixed in it. So the reason I showed this, I know this isn't your, your crop, but the reason I showed this, and maybe I, I should, I'll get some crop pictures. I'll get some canvas pictures next time. I'm sorry. But um, 
<laughs> the, the reason that I showed this is, do you see how you as the farmer actually, if you have the tool, the nutrient tool in your pocket, that can be taken, it's really microdynamic nutrients, so they're easily taken up foliarly or with soil drenched. Do you see how you all of a sudden have a tool to feed them the right amount of nutrient at the right time? You can take a plant and instead of, you'll actually get higher yields with less costs in reality. I'm not talking about lessening your yields because you're not using the right nutrients or the right amount of nutrients. I'm talking about pushing on yields because a plant gets everything it needs when it needs it. Um, so these are the recipes again. Um, so here's kind of the base. All of these have this. So it's a brown rice vinegar, an OHN, and a fermented plant juice. And uh, they're used in very small quantities. And then you add in, on top of that recipe, you add in a fish amino acid, so this is your high nitrogen. Um, or you add in a calcium phosphate, so your phosphorus comes in for changeover or you add a um, calcium, uh, highly micronized plant available calcium um, for that fat plant. So that, that one guy would get the calcium, that guy would get the changeover, that guy would get the nitrogen. And the plants go through um, stages of needing different ones of these throughout. So you might have a plant that's in production, but maybe it starts needing a little nitrogen. You can bring in, bring back in the nitrogen at that time. Um, even though it's gone into flower. But you can do it through soil drainage so you're not spraying on the foliar. Um, so this is the same thing. This is kind of what the sheep has. And, and natural farming is a bit of a radical. So I teach a five-day intensive class. I'll be doing one in Boise in August. It's on my website, naturalfarming.co. I also teach this, applying this stuff in like a 45-minute class online that you can just watch online and I send you some documents that go with it. Because it's it's a technique, it's it's an art, it's learning how to do something um, that's skill based. Yeah. Chris, your your examples are always so beautiful. And when I share my 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 preparations with folks and I tell them mix at a thousand to one, they're like, shut up, that's not right. gonna do anything. How do you explain to people how such a small amount can have such a big impact? I show them that I have 25% higher yields than them. <laughs> it's really hard to convince people these things. They're like, I've never, nobody does it like that. You can't be right. Okay. But you bring them to your farm and you show them. They say, hey, my fertilizer costs me like one tenth of what yours are.
um, drips into the drip line where all the feeder roots are, you know, like, this is how nature fertilizes, you know, and there's all kinds of nitrogen in the soil. It's, it's difficult. It's, that, that's a great question. How do you convince people that you can farm a different way? Well, the example that I use is that I just talk it's like homeopathic medicine kind of, like a little bit, turns on systems, and I don't know if that's legit or not, but people go, oh yeah, that's enough. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, commercial farmers are going to be like, homeopathic, yeah, thanks man. Yeah. I'm not going to put my livelihood on your, you know, boo-boo, yada-yada stuff. It's hard. It's, it's, that's a great question. It's hard. How do you convince others to give this a try? And, um, you know, it's, it was, I had a lot of kind of pushback in our industry, a lot, in my family of, you know, farming together, we had pushback. And, uh, and finally everybody was like, oh no, we're doing this. <laughs> like, you know, like, and then my, my peers in the industry are like, we can come to China and speak to our international research. We can be on our research board and you know these things are you know from them looking the the head of the international macadamia society came to our farm he's like i don't see trees like this anywhere you know we you know i i want to hear what you have to say to me. and so the best way to do it is show them. And, and so um and humbled i had a few of the farmers get up eddie has is one he came to our class and um He's profitable with this. He has a pretty big grow. Josh, how many acres does, how much area does Eddie farm? Uh, he's, Josh stepped out, but it's, you know, guys are using this on cannabis. Wendy's using this on cannabis and getting yields, you know, real yields, um, and their fertilizer costs are going down. So anyways, it's, it's a great question. Hard to explain um, or hard to convince people without just showing them. But yeah, I'll, I'd love to take more questions. I have a little bit of time left to take questions, I think, so ask away. Can I buy your nuts? Yep, I'm mowing. Um, what if you just left it? What if there is there? Uh, the grass would grow five, six feet high and we mechanically harvest off the ground. <laughs> um, you know those things that pick up golf balls in the driving lane? Some of our harvesters look like that. And so, we need to keep it kind of turf like. Yeah, and you can, it, the, we sell the processors, our nuts right now. One of our processors is um, making an organic package on my Instagram, it, it shows them. We don't really get paid when they sell things though. We get paid as a farmer, so we get a, a bulk unprocessed rate, so you're not helping our farm. But they're incredibly tasty, you can Brown rice vinegar. So vinegar helps to micronize your water particles. It actually helps for the whole solution to be micronized or easily taken up. It actually has a, a bunch of cool properties. And OHN, um, I actually sell it on the website because it's a three-month process to make. But I teach you how to make it on YouTube. It's really doable. It's not hard. It's just kind of a tedious. So people are like, I want to start tomorrow. And I'm like, takes three months to get started. So I do, I did make that and you can buy it um, just until you get yours going. Yeah. Making uh, an IMO collection, 
I had three, well, two field attempts before I actually got it right last summer, but I tried late in the season and sent you some pictures, and I had a lot of molds in the culture. When's the best time of the year? Because come September, we're 85, 90% humidity, 40 degrees. When's the best time of the year to do an IMO so this question is, when is the best time of year to collect IMO? That's the IMO one. So that you get that initial inoculum out of the forest. And ideally, I, as a farmer, this is the cool part about IMO too. I, I always say when people are like, well, Elaine or Cho, you know, natural farming or soil food. I can't, there's no path. I can't pass. We can take all this information and benefit from it as farmers. And so if Elaine had IMO too on her show, she would benefit if these Koreans, so on you had the understanding of fungal bacterial ratios, it would have been super helped. So we can learn from all of this. It's a good time to be alive and understand the microbial life in the soil. But um, ideally, as a farmer, I would have an inoculum from each season over a three-year period on my shelf. So I'd have a spring, summer, fall. Maybe I can't harvest in winter. It's difficult. Um, over three years, and they're all shelf stable. And then when I go to make some of this material, I just have a scoop from each one, and I have diversity over, you know, rainy season, dry season, all these different microbes that thrive or diminish depending on the season are all inoculated. And um, so that's ideal. But maybe you have three, maybe you have spring, summer, fall over a couple of years. Um, but they do keep for several years. So now instead of me having to run out and grab material to inoculate my um, compost each time, I have them on my shelf, they're stored inside and kept safe because those are really valuable to me. So yeah, every time is a good time to collect it, but you do have to vary sometimes if it's like, we've had a good collection at 105 degrees in the desert in Idaho this last summer, and uh, I had to make a little wet of rice so that it wouldn't dry out before the collection got to bloom and everything that happened. Good question. Ask, I was going to ask a question. Besides LED? Besides LED? No, you don't have to refrigerate. All right, I'm going to, I'm going to, you can refrigerate LED. I wouldn't refrigerate. You don't really need to refrigerate other things. I'm going to run uh, 
random video in the background. We have just a few more minutes before we have to pick it up. I got a but, um, question. This will just be fun to watch some of the streams we're doing on our farm. I'll stand by to shoot. Why? Is it is a spring? Oop. We had a question on from the online. They asked, "What is SW and what is FPJ?" What? Okay, so SW. How do I make this play? SW is seawater. Did I go to like a different screen? Oh yeah, I did. So SW is ocean water, which. Oh, it's going right now. That is awkward. There we go. This is a strain liquid I am on the farm. Um, it's a lot of fun. So, SWC water plants have a salinity in their blood, so to speak, of about a 1 to 30 dilution of seawater. So, when we take seawater and dilute it 1 to 30, we're basically treating plants with their cytoplasm, if you will. Um, we have the same thing. In our blood, we have basically seawater too, right? So using some seawater, the great way to get some minor minerals, etc. And then, what was the other one? S seawater and what? Uh, FPJ. FPJ, fermented plant juice. I have a video on it. You can check it out on YouTube. Um, just search Chris Trump FPJ, and uh, it'll take you on the whole process on how to do it. And uh, it's a great plant food, basically, is what you're getting from that. It's a good plant and you have beneficial biochemical studies that there too. Um, yeah, so... Repeat how question. How do you choose a plant for FPJ is, is what he's asking. Yeah, and um, that's great question. So what I look for is health. So um, if a plant is always crazy healthy, always grows like crazy, and the bugs never mess with it, it's doing a really good job of taking up nutrients and making relationships in that soil and that environment. Does that make sense? So I'm looking not so much for, you know, people are like, well, that really cool plant that has all these things we know about. What about the things we don't know about, you know? So I'm looking, we, we actually know, I'm sorry, I keep knocking what we know, but we know very little about a lot of these things. We're trying to understand how beneficial biochemicals interact when we apply them to our plants, but we are just beginning to understand that. It's cutting-edge research that is still in the experimental stage. But if I take, we use kelp. Why do we use kelp? Because kelp grows like crazy. It never gets sick. It's always going nuts, right? It's, it's, it has some of the best biochemicals in nature as far as plant growth hormone. A lot of the plants in your environment that you are literally blind to, this is the thing, you gotta turn, you gotta put your goggles back on of, I am looking for things that are healthy, because all the things that are the best for FPJ, you're literally blind to, because you see them every day, and you come to ignore them. They're your, your ivy, or your ice plant, or your um, sour grass, or whatever, all these random things that grow everywhere, and no one ever has to take care of them, they're always thriving and always beautiful and lush and the bugs never mess with them. You know, those are the good things to choose for FPJ. Yeah, pond weeds can work. You have a question there?
visiting that and it's still talking. Is that showing up in your feet? I'll turn it off. Okay. Sorry, I asked your question again. Yeah, so same way you apply it to anything. Um, you're going to have to choose your application method. How would I apply it to row crops was this question. Application method is something you're going to have to decide for yourself. You can apply IMO4 at 330 pounds per quarter acre. I have a video on showing how to apply IML4. You saw the video of me throwing out with a compost thrower. Um, that's how you apply a so solid IML. Or you could do it foliarly with a liquid IML. about 
stood the test of time and had a lot of experimentation. So I would encourage you to kind of play with it and learn from it as it is before you improve on it. So Gil has played with it a long time and he's made some changes that work for him. Um, I would encourage you to, yes, learn from that, but at the same time, also seek that understanding of nature that allowed him to make changes that work for him on his farm. What's in your Oh, this is me making um, a 90,000 pound pile of IMO3. So I am, those are, that's actually wheat mill run from a, a mill in Hawaii. And this is wood chips. I'm getting my wood chips ready to lay down the mill run on top of. That's my liquid IMO inoculum right here. I'll spray on all of it. And uh, that was beautiful. I had incredible fungal hypha and everything. Um, <coughs> yeah, and those trees. Yeah. You said you only have two uh, people working on your farm. Did your labor go down as well? No. No, our labor increased a little bit. Okay. Um, we were had a higher mower. Right. But for all for all the costs to make to buy the inputs to um, apply them, <coughs> we spray three times a year our nutrients and we do some composting. We make um, some compost from our byproducts. Um, our costs are about $27 per acre per year to apply natural farming inputs. So, and this, what does that this, compare to other conventional farmers in your area? So, uh, comparable. <coughs> comparable to a conventional cost, um, but maybe a little less. Is there a role for animals in 
totally role for animals in this. Um, I farm a tiny bit of chickens right now in Boise, Idaho. We farm 200 uh, hair sheep in Hawaii, which is hobby for us. Um, but um, treating uh, grassland is incredibly effective in with natural farming. How am I doing on time, Josh? Is he not here? Oh, I still got a little bit. Amen. Okay. Um, so yeah, um, chicken farming and Korean natural farming is really the jewel of natural farming. There's so many cool things, but a lot of chicken farming, pig farming, cattle farming, um, it's really focused on, or a huge part of it is IMO4 in their food and IMO4 in their living environment and their soils to deal with food. So pigs, you never, there's no smell piggeries and you never have to change the litter. They'll literally, their poop will get turned into white vitamin crackers and they'll dig for it and eat it and be the better for it. You won't have any diseases. Um, it's, it's really incredible. And chickens the same way. I have a chicken coop that I've run for a year at our new place in Boise and uh, we've never cleaned out chicken coop. break it down. They dig in it, they eat in their leaf, in their litter, and uh, it's it's full of bugs and stuff. I don't have a YouTube video on chickens. I will by summertime. I, I have all the footage and stuff. I've just not put it together. Um, yeah. So what do you use for your chicken coop litter? Say that again? What do you use for your litter? Uh, wood chips and IMO4. Uh, some biochar if you can get it, and a little bit of sea salt. I do have a video on how to make the, the floor for a chicken coop that's on my YouTube. And the floor for a piggery. Yeah? What is FAA and SES? FAA is fish amino acids. There's a video on how to make it. It's basically getting fish waste for free, adding some sugar to it and leaving it sit for six months and you basically have patis or fish sauce, but it is a highly micronized nitrogen source for that's really plant available.
you know, so many cultures have this steam room, saunas, Indian sweat tents, all these places to get your body hot for health purposes. And uh, there's something to it. I don't know. It felt good. <laughs> I've done it a couple of times. Yeah. Touch on when to collect IMO. How about where? Um, great question. Where should we collect IMO1? You want to look for a place of health. So I was out in Washington, Indian Reservation, and it was early spring and things were kind of dryish and kind of dead still from winter, just beginning to wake up. And everything's brown, we're cruising along, and we can get IMO from those places, it's totally possible. Then on the hill, I saw this kind of like swath of health, and I'm like, oh, there's probably some water there, but there's also a general life. And so we went in there and found beautiful mycelium and stuff in kind of a, a, a forest area. But what you want to look for is one, visible health of the vegetation there, right? Because that's a marker that there's good stuff going on. Because nobody's tending to it. It's not like, oh, that place got fertilized. It's, there's something positive happening. And then you want to go to a place with as little human interaction for as long as possible. So a thousand years undisturbed, great place to go because what's going to happen is that's created. So for example, in Hawaii we were in sugarcane for a long time. There's a place um, near where I farm where I had a conversation. I was up there um, actually collecting that amount and I had a conversation with a soil um, microbiologist um, who worked for the University of Hawaii and he was doing a trial up there. And he said, just on this side of the fence line up the hill, has never been in cane, has never been in any cultivation other than you know, ancient Hawaiian practices. Down the hill, we've been in cane and we used gnarly stuff. And he's like, the, I, have, I have 10 times the diversity 100 feet away uphill than I do downhill, or it's been in. So this is, this is the effect that a disturbed farming practice can have on the diversity that nature can, can form under, over time. So that was a research project he was working on. So if you have something that got scraped and cleared and then they put topsoil back in to build a house or a place and then you go there, you know, that's gonna have limited diversity. People are like, oh look, I got some things to bloom in my rice pot. It's like, yes, that is real microbial life. But that diversity is not gonna serve you from disease suppressing um, health of plant uh, flower plasticity necessarily. You probably have one or two microbes. And yes, you can see them with your naked eye, but you know, I don't have a lot of diversity there. Or somebody harvests in their worm bin. Worm bins have great microbial life, and worms knock out E. coli with their bodies and, and stuff, and it's all good, but it doesn't have the diversity of a thousand-year-old forest. You with me? So that's, you want to collect somewhere if you can go and find something undisturbed, you know? What if that's 10 miles from my place? Or what if it's a 30 minute drive? If it's generally the same microclimate, I'm okay with that. Is it too far away? It, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, it, I, I could, but I know that getting a totally different climate, you're, you're gonna, it's, it's not gonna have the same. And you're, you want to make IMO3 to IMO4 with your local soils so that you're introducing them to the, um, your soils, um, microarthropods and nematodes and all that good stuff.
How much um, soil are you supposed to collect, and are you supposed to dig down a little to get to get your stuff, or does it matter? For IMO four, for yeah. that soil. Yeah, um, you just you you want as much soil as um, IMO three you have, so equal by mass. So more by weight than by volume. IMO three will often be light and fluffy, and so you're gonna use a little less soil if you look at the piles next to each other. And then um, if you can, you collect it from a couple places in your farmland. And if you can get some red soil, some of that um, iron rich, you know, if you have red soil in your area, that's great too. Yeah, so 25% iron, uh, red soil, 25%, you know, farm or your area soil, and then 50% IMO3 is ideal for that. So, I know, like, people who live in the city, they don't Michigan, everything's basically at one point been cut down and devastated by human beings, right? And so, say, like, I live in Ann Arbor, there's like a state park like 30 miles west. Is that probably where you would go? Or would you go like, or like somewhere like Detroit, that almost might be like one of the closest places that they could find some untapped. And that's yeah. like an hour away. That's, so that's probably okay. Because yeah. you're still getting the same kind of winter cycle, you're still getting a similar rainfall. You know, um, yeah, and but I would also get something closer that maybe isn't as diverse or long. So I would have a little bit from each, mingle them all when you make your IMO3. What about like, like abandoned alleyways that you've know been back like I'm serious. You, you can do whatever you want. Ultimately, you're king of your farm. You gotta make good choices uh, as, as best you can. Well, yeah, yeah, dude, but if you're in a warehouse downtown Detroit and like you're trying to gather local indigenous microorganisms, I'm not. No, no, I, I wasn't thinking it was a joke. I, I know what you're saying. You, I, I can't answer all that. Is I guess what I'm saying. You, you're gonna have if you're thinking, wow, there's some thriving plant life here. I'm gonna collect here. Uh, what I would say though is if you do that alleyway, make sure you have some from that park too. You know, don't don't just do the alleyway IMO two to IMO three. Try and get a few places, even if that park's an hour away and maybe it's too far, you're still going to get a much better diversity from that. I mean, 100 to 1 diversity wise. And even though maybe that isn't all perfect for your environment, you're still going to get a lot from that. So I, I would probably lean personally to the park and the alleyway um, for the sake of diversity. But I hear you. You got to do, you, you literally can do that though. You can farm with the stuff you get anywhere and it's your own inoculum and it's probably sorry it's probably better than many things you can get on the shelf <laughs> it really is i mean you're you're getting it's active and right there ready to go yeah off last year's beds yeah yeah you can it did it go well no i'm asking you oh yeah no no, no i'm i'm saying did last year go well? Do I want to perpetuate those things forward? That matters. Um, yeah, you can. Definitely. You can do all of it. I mean, you can play with these concepts and benefit from them. Um, but just take this from my words. If you kind of just trust me, diversity is the goal. Maximize your diversity. Even if you're indoor, grow maximize your diversity it's how nature works it's in highly diverse environments yeah you got you got you got your hand up with that i'm just curious how you get nine thousand pounds of imo how do you, you go out in the woods and you collect a bit 
So I made how you culture it to that I made ninety thousand pounds of IMO with a handful of IMO too. So that's what I'm asking. It's the, the, the culture possibilities are pretty endless then. Yeah, you can grow this stuff out. There's a whole process for that. Guys, I appreciate the time you gave me to speak so much and uh, yeah, your questions are awesome. And feel free to hit me up whenever.